You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the Beast of Birkenshaw. Welcome back, listeners. Last time, we heard all about Peter Manuel and his family, where he grew up, and how from a young age he was in trouble with the law. We saw his criminality and his violence grow and culminate in the deaths of at least eight people, Anne Neeland, the Watts family, Isabel Cook, and the Smart family. He was a convicted burglar and an admitted murderer. But when we left him, he was facing into a legal battle and was unhappy with his legal representation though he had the best that the state could offer. The Scottish legal system works much like the Irish legal system in that there are no designated public defenders, rather lawyers who deal with criminal cases are on a rota and are rostered to deal with cases as they arise. So in Manuel's case, he was given the next available barrister, who happened to be the counsel that his old lawyer Dowdle had briefed when it looked as if William Watts would be standing trial for the murder of his family. Manuel knew the Scottish legal system literally inside out. He had defended himself before. He had studied law while he was in prison in Peterhead for rape. So it seems nearly logical that he would ditch one of the best-known advocates to try his hand at defending himself against eight murder charges. As soon as he could, he started to assist in his own defense. He had an earnest conversation with family, friends, and associates, some criminal, others not. It's possible that he was trying to help them to remember events in a way that would help him in his defense. He tried to starve himself so as to look pale and thin, as if he was being mistreated when next he appeared in court, but his family sent him food and he ate whatever they sent. There were questions from both sides as to whether Manuel was mentally fit to stand trial. The obvious question had to be asked, was this a madman that had committed these random and senseless crimes? Was he, for the purposes of the court of law, insane? To answer that question, experts had to be brought in to ascertain Manuel's mental faculties. He was examined by a number of medical professionals numerous times after his arrest, including two forensic pathologists who examined the victims and a neurologist. The neurologist, Andrew McNiven, also spoke to Peter's family about his behaviour and personality. While his parents had nothing but good to say about Peter, he was kind, intelligent, generous. His sister Teresa, who was a nurse, described him as a psychopath. She said that he had no real concern for other people, and described how days before his arrest, when he knew he was being watched by the police, he flew into a rage and started to swing a fire poker about. He was threatening to go out and attack the police, who were outside the house, and he had to be talked down. McNiven also found that Manuel had a remarkable memory and communicated well, but he also found that he entirely lacked self-criticism. He was eerily composed and seemed detached when describing his own actions, as if they were the actions of another. Manuel told him that his circumstances were the result of some grand conspiracy against him by the police, 
McNiven thought that this idea had grown so large in Manuel's mind that it may have formed the basis of a paranoid belief system held by Manuel. Peter did tell him, however, that he had had two dramatic injuries in his teenage years. The first was that he had caught shrapnel from a fragment of a bomb which lodged in his forehead. He said he'd been unconscious for six or seven hours and that the metal had to be surgically removed. The second was that he had been electrocuted by a concrete mixer while in the Borstal and that in that incident three other boys had been killed. It's unlikely that these incidents actually happened, though. His father never mentioned them, and they didn't turn up in the reports from the Borstal school. Perhaps he invented them in order to add some drama to an otherwise dreary childhood that contained only the normal amount of childhood abuse for 1940 standards. Or perhaps he was attempting to set up a second line of defense and planned to claim that he was not mentally competent and therefore could not be held responsible for his crimes. Manuel also claimed to have some incidents of blackouts or memory loss. However, McNiven found him fit to plead. A psychiatrist, Ferguson Roger, was told that he had been framed for the 1946 rape of Mary McLaughlin and an incident where he was sacked for tampering with the safe when he worked on the railways. That had been someone else, and he had gotten the blame. His attitude was recorded as relaxed and jovial. He was confident that he was going to be acquitted. In Scotland at the time, there was a 110-day limit within which a trial must occur from the point of arrest and charge. So the minute that Manuel was charged... Legal teams from both sides swung into action to prepare their cases. The charging papers were two pages long and listed crimes ranging from criminal damage to capital murder. There was an extension of time granted due to the large number of witnesses scheduled to appear. 280 was the number listed on the prosecution side alone. Manuel submitted a special defense, which if successful would mean an acquittal that Charles Tallis and a woman named Mary Bowes had done the burglary at Martin's house and that William Watts had murdered his own family. All this would remain at a wraps until the trial began, though, on the 12th of May, 1958. Meanwhile, on the other side, the media was desperate for a story and within two weeks of the indictment, Samuel and Bridget, Peter's parents, had sold their story to the Empire News, a Sunday edition. His brother James signed up with the Glasgow Herald. Teresa did not sell her story. She seemed to not want to have anything to do with the whole thing. Reporters had approached prison officials and even other prisoners to try and get information on Manuel, the Beast of Birkenshaw. Authorities were worried about what information might make its way into the public as they didn't want to taint the jury pool. It was a complicated matter due in part to the fact that there were differences in the Scottish and English law, but the papers were available on both sides of the border. Peter even claimed to have sold the rights to his autobiography to another Sunday paper, which caused a certain degree of consternation, as he alleged the deal was done through one of his agents, or his solicitor. The team of lawyers was then forced to assure the courts that although his agent, Doherty, had ties to the Empire News, he was involved purely in Manuel's defense. The other agent, Ferns, went on to justify the family's deals with the newspapers as a means to pay for legal costs for Manuel. The Sunday pictorial did indeed approach Manuel directly and offered a huge sum of £3,000 for his autobiography. I looked it up, that would be about £70,000 today. That was just their starting offer. This was quickly put to bed by the authorities, however. Manuel never read their offer, as it was intercepted by the prison workers. Prisoners were not allowed to communicate any, quote, material intended for publication, end quote. Another author also tried to get through to Manuel about a book deal. 
Moreland Nigel wrote to the governor of the prison, whom he hoped would pass on a letter to Manuel offering to write his story, but said that he was going to write, quote, a responsible story, end quote, to counterbalance all the sensationalism that was in the media at the time. The letter, again, never made it to Manuel. This media attention was all building up to the trial itself, which began on the 12th of May 1958, when Manuel entered the Glasgow High Court. He was snappily dressed and well turned out as usual, and walked with confidence, despite the fact that he faced the prospect of hanging if things did not go his way. Perhaps his confidence was due to not being sure that he would beat the charges, but rather because Manuel was now the centre of attention, which by all accounts was what he most craved in life. 295 witnesses and 158 items of evidence were made ready and the courtroom was packed full of press and the public, some of whom had been waiting since the night before to try and get into the 60-seater courtroom. On entering the courtroom, the press and public would have been confronted with the bloody mattress and a log also covered in blood from the Anne Nealon scene. The guns used in the two family murders were also displayed. As the trial was scheduled to begin, the publicity that the upcoming case had brought nearly derails the whole affair. One of the newspaper, the News of the World, Shakar, has printed a picture of Manuel next to its headline story. This was illegal in Scotland at the time, as it was thought that it may influence potential witness identification of the accused. That evening, the paper sent an apology to the court, and the Lord Advocate allowed the trial to begin. In truth, the picture that was printed was small and looked more like a sketch, so it would have been difficult to identify Manuel from it anyway. Nine men and three women were sworn into the jury, and the charge sheets and special defences were read out. This is the first shocker that happens in court, and some of the journalists sneak out of the courtroom to report that Manuel has accused Watt of the murder of his own wife, daughter, and sister-in-law. Firstly, they deal with Anne. A policeman takes the stand and describes the scene of the crime, and is followed by Anne's father, who describes his daughter's last movements and having to identify her body after her disappearance. The boy she was to meet at the bus stop that day, that she had met the night before at the dance, Andrew Mernon, recounts how he'd forgotten their date. The man who found her describes walking across the field and seeing her there with her head smashed open. Her injuries are fully testified to by another policeman, who also describes her defensive wounds on her hands and arms, and how she must have run from and fought her attacker. They testify to seeing Manuel the day that Anne Nealon's body was found, and that he had scratches on his face. Manuel's boss also testified that Peter had cuts or scratches on his face. They weren't there on December 31st, but they were there when he returned to work, and they looked to be three to four days old. Manuel also appeared to not have shaved for as many days. They linked the gun used in the Watts murders to another break-in at the Platts house where a bullet from the same gun had been fired into a mattress. Manuel had taken a prototype electric razor from the Platts house, and this was found in his room during the police search of the Manuel home. Mr. Platt himself gave testimony. The family had been away for the weekend, and when they arrived home, there was an awful mess in their house. Food had been taken out of the cupboards and had been scattered around the house. A tin of pears had been opened and flung around the sitting room. Jewellery had been left, but the razor and some tools were missing, and there was a little black hole in the mattress. The bullet had fallen out some time later, and when they realised that the police were after a particular calibre bullet in the Watts murders, they reported it. 
Next in the witness stand was Margaret Martin, who lived in a house not far from the Watts house that was burgled the same night as the Watts family were murdered. She and her sister had gone away on a short holiday and returned to a chaotic mess in the house. Tomato soup and tin spaghetti had been thrown across the house, ruining furniture and carpets. Someone had slept in her sister's bed. There was little missing. They only noticed that two rings had been taken in the days following the break-in. The mess linked the burglary to the Platts break-in, which linked Manuel to the Watts murders. On the second day, the prosecution turned to the Watts murders themselves. First to the stand was Mrs. Watts' home help, Miss Colliston. She described how she had arrived that morning and was unable to get into the house. Usually, Vivian would have left the back door open on her way out in the morning, but the door was locked shut when she tried it. She described how she got the neighbour and the postman to help her look around the house and how the postman had put his hands through the broken window at the front door and opened it. Then, the three women were discovered in their beds. Miss Colliston also testified that, from what she could tell, the Watts had a happy marriage and had been on holiday together in their final year. The defence needed to make out their case that the Watt marriage was unhappy and this gave William Watt himself a motive to kill his wife, daughter and sister-in-law. The defence counsel tried to argue that Watt had killed them for our insurance money and they had Miss Collison recount how Watt had asked for the keys to the cupboard where the insurance papers were kept after the murders. The neighbour girl, Diane Valente, next took the stand and described the afternoon that she had spent with the Watts' daughter. When she went home, she could still hear the top 20 music coming from her friend's window. Miss Valente testified that, unlike what Manuel had maintained, that the Valente house had been the real target that evening because they were known to keep large sums of money in the house, and that the Watts house was broken into after being mistaken for the Valentes, they never kept sums of money in the house. The time of death was narrowed down by a telephone operator's testimony that there was a request for a wake-up call placed at 1.26am, and that three calls were made to the house at 7am and were not answered. This narrowed down the time of death to the families between half one and seven that morning. The only mess found in the Watts house was a cigarette butt and a burn mark on the carpet next to Vivian's bed. No cigarettes were found in the house, so it is likely that these items had come from the intruder. James Tinney O'Neill testified that he arranged to get Manuel a gun about eight days before the Watt murders. He said that although he never actually saw Manuel with the gun, he assumed he'd been successful in his purchase after meeting with another man, who was his contact, Peter Hamilton, who himself took the stand and told how he had been drinking with two other men and that he sold the gun to Manuel for five pounds. He was shown the gun that was recovered from the river, and although he couldn't confirm that it was the same gun, he said it certainly was similar to the one he had handed over to Manuel. The next witness was the man who sold the gun to Hamilton, who had stolen it while he was in the RAF. It had exchanged hands when he was in Glasgow five years previously. Another man testified to Manuel showing him the gun the Friday before the Watts were killed in September 1956. On the third day of the trial, Charles Tallis took the stand. This was the man that Manuel had tried to set up for the Watts murders, and there was bad blood between the two. Tallis's brother-in-law had assaulted Manuel while he was being held in custody because Manuel was trying to blame Tallis for some of his crimes. Tallis was named in Manuel's special defence as the person responsible for the Martin break-in, 
so it was important for the prosecution to show that he had nothing to do with it. The day before the Watt murders, his partner's son, Alan Bowes, was married. The wedding reception went on till 11 o'clock that night, and then Talis and Mrs. Bowes returned to the Bowes house with the newlyweds. They stayed in the house until 1 or 2 in the morning, and Talis and Bowes then went to bed. The next day, Talis visited his sister in hospital, stopped into a hotel, and then returned back to the Bowes home. The four of them then drove about 20 miles to a pub, and stayed there until 11 o'clock or so. Talis stated he had never been in Burnside in his life, let alone in the Watt House. On the following Monday, Talis described how he had been in the pub, the Crook Inn, when Manuel was present. He had commented that there seemed to be something going on as the papers had released a special edition. At that point, Manuel asked Talis to leave with him. They went to Manuel's house. Manuel went up to his room before heading back out to Glasgow. On the way there, Manuel pulled out two rings and showed them to Talis and said, quote, These are the two hottest rings you'll ever see in your life. End quote. Talis pointed out that he'd seen lots of stolen rings and asked what made them any different to the others, but Manuel didn't respond and just put the rings back in his pocket. Talis' description of the rings fit those taken from the Martin house the night of the Watts murders. Later, after Talis saw that the murders had occurred in the special edition of the papers, he asked to see the rings again but Manuel said he had put them down the drain while Talis wasn't looking. He suspected that they had come from either the Watts house or the other house that had been broken into, and Manuel didn't dissuade him of that idea either. Defence counsel took over, and after much back and forth about whether or not Talis knew anything about guns, he said he didn't. He was asked outright if he had broken into the Martins' house. He denied it outright. He denied arranging to get a gun for William Watt and denied ever meeting him. He never told Manuel that he was being paid to break in and mess up a house in Burnside that weekend. He never owned a gun, and he never needed to dispose of one. Mary Bowes took the stand and confirmed Tala's story. He was at the wedding, then her house, then the hospital, and then the pub. Her younger son James confirms this too. Alan, the groom at the wedding, also backs this up, and interestingly admits that at one point he himself did own a gun, but not the sort that was used in the Watts murder and that he had sold it to a shop owner for two pounds. Guns were not all that rare or expensive in Glasgow, it would seem. The jury took note. The prosecution then turned to Watts. Testimony about his movements would be crucial. The prosecution needed not only to prove that Manuel committed the murders, but because of Manuel's special defense naming Watt as the murder, they also needed to show that Watt had not committed the crime. All the defence needed to show was that it was possible that he had killed his family, to throw reasonable doubt into the mix, which would end in an acquittal for Manuel. In the media and in the public perception, people fell into two camps. That Walt was completely innocent and had only been arrested because the police were incompetent, or that he was guilty and had only been released because there was not enough evidence against him for a trial. The prosecution went about establishing Watt's whereabouts in the run-up to that weekend. He had gone north to stay in the Carnbon Hotel the week before the murders occurred. The hotel was run by friends of the family, Mr. and Mrs. Leach. On Sunday the 16th of September, Watts had gone fishing and visited friends nearby. He stayed up after midnight on his return to the hotel. The next morning, Mrs. Leach got a phone call from Watts' brother bearing the awful news of the murders. Watts was out fishing, so she arranged for a local taxi man to go out and get him and bring him back for an important phone call. 
Watt was distraught and set off back to Glasgow. He was accompanied by another friend, Mr. Bruce. Mrs. Leach described the route from Carnban to Glasgow along small, poorly maintained country roads and told how Watt had had some car difficulty earlier in the week. His lights weren't working correctly. Mrs. Leach didn't think it was possible for him to have driven the route in the dark, in the faulty car, and then back again the morning of the 16th. The defence had done some digging into Watts and his visits to Carnban, and decided to try and attack Watts' character. Mrs. Leach was asked if William Watts had ever arrived at the hotel with a woman who was not his wife. She stated that he never had. She was then asked about a certain close female friend of Watts that had also stayed in the hotel at the same time as Watts had in the past. But she then pointed out that the woman had been visiting with her sister and that they shared a room. Watts had been staying with a male friend of his and they too had shared a room. The morning of the 16th, Watt had gotten up at around half five and had already left to go fishing when Miss Leach came downstairs. Mr. Leach says he saw Watts' car outside the hotel at 7.45am and that there was frost on the bonnet. A waitress at the hotel, Catherine McLean, had also seen Watt that morning. She was riding her bicycle to work and passed Watt in his car at about five past eight. He was wiping fog off the inside of the windscreen and there was frost on the outside of it. She could tell because the wipers were leaving marks on the ice. Next in the witness box is solicitor Lawrence Dowdle. He had acted for Watts when he was initially arrested for the murders, represented Manuel's parents, and also at one point had acted for Manuel himself. He described how Manuel had written him from prison, offering information in return for securing him bail. The defence were on the attack and accused Dowdle of acting improperly by passing on information to Watts. Dowdle, however, stated that he was acting for Manuel in relation to another criminal matter and therefore anything that he was told about the Watts murders was not privileged information. They also tried to claim that it was Dowdle who had given Manuel the detailed information regarding the layout of the Watts house. On the fourth day of the trial, William Watt took the stand himself. He had been recently injured in a car accident and could not stand for long periods of time, so he appeared in court on something approaching a stretcher. He described how he had taken the holiday to recover from work and from sciatica. He had planned to get up early that morning and go fishing, but had decided to sleep in. He slept later than he thought and only realised when he saw Catherine McLean on the road on her way to work. He went to the river for a short time and then returned to the hotel for breakfast leaving again for the river before Mrs. Leach came down the stairs. He described getting the news that the murders had occurred, and how he had attempted to drive back to Glasgow himself, but was unable. He and his friend Mr. Bruce had called into the police station for help. He described how he had come under suspicion, had gone through two identity parades, and was eventually charged with the murder and sent to prison. He spent 67 days in Barlinny. He described meeting with Manuel and moving from pub to restaurant to yet another pub. Manuel told him that he knew who had committed the Watts murders and had shown him a picture of a young girl who Watts recognised as Anne Neelands. Manuel had told him the story that the murders were a mistake and that it was all a case of the wrong house being broken into, that it was the Valente's house that was supposed to have been robbed because they were well known to keep large sums of money in the safe. The plan had been to kill everybody in the house bar one person who would then be forced to show the robbers where the safe was and how to get into it. He recounted how Manuel had detailed knowledge of the inside of his house, but that Manuel had insisted that it was Talus who gave him all these details 
and that Manuel had not been in the house himself. They discussed the gun used in the Watts murders, and Manuel admitted to throwing the gun used into the Clyde. The defence team then began their questioning. They asked about Mr. Watts' infidelities. They had him deny that he had had his car looked at the week before the murders to ensure that it was in good working order for the two-hour dash back to Glasgow to commit the murders. He denied getting a gun from Talis and told again how distressed he was at the news of the death of his wife, daughter and sister-in-law, so much so that he was unable to drive home. He said he first heard about Manuel through Dowdle while he was in prison and he was after information and that's why he agreed to meet with him. He was asked why hadn't he gone to the police. Watt became angry. He had gone to the police. Nothing was done in the investigation unless his solicitor had prompted it. Watt strongly suspected Manuel before they met, but he needed to question him in order to be sure. The defence yet again pushed him and said that he had spent so long with Manuel because he was trying to fabricate evidence against another who would then take the fall for Watt's crime. He denied over and over that he had given any money to Manuel or that he was trying to come to some sort of arrangement with him. As for the insurance payout on his wife's policy, that only came to around 50 or 60 pounds. After more testimony about the geography of the various cases, how close together all the important locations were, Manuel's house, the smart house, Isabella Cook's home, the testimony turned to the break-in at Reverend Houston's house. He identified the camera and gloves that were recovered from the Manuel's house as belonging to him. Next on to the murder of Isabella Cook. Her father told about how she had failed to return home the night of the 28th of December, and that throughout the period she was missing, the police would come to their house with yet another item of hers that had been scattered around the area. Evidence was given about her last night. At around half eight that night, a witness heard a woman crying out. At half eleven, a police constable saw Peter Manuel walking along the railway line next to the road. But the identification was shaky, as he wrongly remembered a full moon that night, and admitted that he did need glasses to see. Finally, the court moves on to consider the Smarts. It was argued that the Smarts had been killed on the morning of the 1st of January, although their bodies were not found until the 6th. Witnesses described the lights going on and off, curtains opening and closing, as well as the garage being opened and shut in that period. The implication being that whoever had committed the murders came and went from the house while the Smarts lay dead inside. The car had been taken and had been spotted around the area by various people between those dates too. One of them was a police constable who identified Manuel as the man driving the car. If Manuel had the Smarts car, there was no way he had gotten it by legitimate means. The prosecution also established the serial notes of the money that Smart had gotten in his last paycheck. From this, he had repaid £7 of an advance to his employers, who kept the new bills in the safe. This meant that the authorities were able to pinpoint the serial numbers on the banknotes that Peter Smart had gotten when he cashed his cheque. Manuel was on national assistance at the time and had no other legal source of income. There was no way he could have come across a large sum of money without it being somehow ill-gotten gains. Now all that was left to do was to link Manuel to these sums to put him in the smart house and at the scene of the crime. They brought up how Manuel had arrived to an engagement party flush with cash and buying everyone drinks and giving money to the engaged couple. He bought liquor and beer to bring back to a party in one of the guests' homes. At the party he pulled out a number of banknotes and for some reason 
it was never questioned by the defense. He read out the serial numbers. One of the guests remembered that they appeared to be in sequence. They were crisp, new, blue banknotes. He was giving away pound notes and cigarettes. It seemed likely that the night after the smarts were killed, Peter Manuel turned up at a party and was giving away booze, cigarettes and pound notes to nearly everyone. After this testimony, Joe Brannan takes the stand. He was the man who had been arrested with Peter at an attempted burglary and who had agreed to spy on Peter for the police. He described how he had known Manuel for some time, nearly four years. He described meeting Manuel after Christmas 1957 and being told about the break-in at the minister's house, but that Manuel only got a small amount of cash and a camera. He recalled seeing Manuel again on the 31st at a pub, and that Manuel's father had to lend Peter a pound note in order for him to get his round in. Peter was broke at Hogmanay. The next day, though, Manuel had money. He called to Brandon's house and gave his kids two shillings each. He recalled how, when they went to the pub, Manuel accidentally handed over a five-pound note to the barman instead of a single pound, but the barman gave him the correct change. Manuel was somehow flush. Brannon also confirmed that Manuel had the use of a car in and around that time. He had apparently used it to cart his drinks around. He also told the court about a journey that he had taken with Manuel, where they saw the police looking for the body of Isabella Cook. He said Manuel had remarked that they were looking in the wrong place. Evidence then turned to how Manuel had gotten the gun that killed the smarts. Another line of criminals from Glasgow's underbelly took the stand and recounted the story of how the Beretta had ended up in Manuel's hands. Billy Fullerton had got it from a soldier in a pub in 1952, who'd sold it to John Trotton, who'd hidden it and then been arrested. It was collected by another inmate, Tony Lowe, on his release. It was then left with Andrew Thompson, at which point it was given to Manuel on Lowe's instructions. The medical evidence came next. There was gruesome testimony relating to the struggles for life of Anne Neeland, Isabel Cook and Vivian Watt. The smarts, however, had died instantaneously. When the defence cross-examined the pathologist and suggested that the shooting deaths were the result of a suicide or an incident of murder-suicide, the pathologist explained that suicide had been excluded because there was no weapon found. Manuel realised that if this was to be his explanation, then he would need to find a way to make the weapons disappear. The first police officer to take the stand was Detective Inspector Robert McNeil, who described the scene at the Smart House and went on to describe the circumstances of the arrest of Peter Manuel. A team of nine police officers had arrived at the Manuel House on the morning of the 14th of January. They had a warrant to search the property for money, banknotes and keys from the Smart property and for the arrest of Peter. Once Peter was taken away, they found the gloves and the camera from Reverend Houston's house, and Samuel Manuel was arrested for theft and receiving stolen goods. Peter was identified in the station through a lineup as the man who had been spending new banknotes. He was charged to breaking into the Houstons and the murder of the Smarts. He was remanded in custody the next day and later that afternoon asked to see his parents, and in return he would tell them everything, and, quote, take you to where the girl cook is buried, end quote. The defense went into full-swing attack at this. They needed to ensure the confessions from the police station were excluded. 
If they had been obtained unlawfully, by the use of force or without proper caution, they could not be heard in the trial. This was a matter for the judge. The jury left the courtroom in order for the matter to be hashed out. Defense counsel suggested that the nine officers sent to the Manuel's house was excessive and that by arresting Samuel Manuel, the police had begun to exert pressure on his son to confess. The defense managed to establish that there was a degree of suspicion of Manuel in relation to the Neeland and Watt murders, so making it possible that the police might have exerted force to compel confessions from him. But had he been denied legal advice and pressured into confessing? He had been cautioned many times and told that he could have legal representation. Detective Inspector Goodall, the next officer on the stand, said that he was only vaguely aware that Manuel's name had come up in relation to other cases, but this had no bearing on his treatment in custody. Another officer, Brown, had even called the solicitor Dowdle to try and get him to come in and act on his behalf. Dowdle said he couldn't act for Manuel in this matter, but recommended another solicitor. The policeman then called that solicitor, Mr. Dunlop, to see if he could come down and give legal advice to Manuel, but he too was unable to act. Bran told the court that Peter was informed in front of his parents that he, quote, need not proceed further, end quote, or that he could get legal advice if he wanted, but the response from Manuel was that he didn't want a lawyer. All of the officers involved repeated that Manuel had been cautioned, that he had been told he could avail of legal advice, and asserted that they had open minds at the time when it came to Manuel's involvement in the other murders. Manuel had been the one to mention them first, in his confessions. But the matter would not be decided without Manuel having his say. He was put under pressure by the police to confess, and was told that he had committed no less than ten murders, and the police would prove it. He said they threatened to charge his father and sister with crimes if he didn't confess to the murders. They told him all about the murders of the Watts, the Smarts, Anne Neeland and Isabel Cook and said that if he didn't repeat the story that his family would be arrested. On the morning of the 15th, when he was told that his father was being sent to prison, he asked to see the officer in charge and was told that if he wrote confessions to the crimes, then the charges against his father would be dropped. In response, Manuel asked to see his parents to ensure their well-being before writing out his confession. Peter told the court that he had been explicitly denied the ability to meet with a lawyer until he had made confessions. The prosecution asked why was it that he never told his parents that he was being denied a lawyer, and Manuel responded that it simply didn't occur to him to say so. The evidence of Samuel and Bridget Manuel about their visit to their son broadly lines up with Peter's story. However, the judge finds in favour of the prosecution. The confessions are in, and the jury resumes their position. The confessions and how they came to be written are explained by Detective Inspector McNeil, that Manuel had said he would tell them everything once he had seen his parents. His confession of how he broke into the smart home and shot the family before robbing the house was read aloud for the jury to hear. McNeil described how Manuel had led the police to the place where he had buried Isabel Cook. He showed them where, on the banks of the River Clyde, he had dumped the guns. He confessed to the attack and murder of Anne Neelands and the Watts family murders. His defence counsel tried to establish that there was some inducements made or some pressure exerted to get the confessions out of Manuel, but McNeil flatly denies this. On the morning of the tenth day of the trial, Detective Inspector Goodall takes the stand, but before he can give his evidence, Manuel interrupts proceedings to ask the judge if he can confer with his counsel. The jury files out. 
when the adjournment is over, defense counsel returns and informs the court that the whole team has just been fired by Manuel. His fate is now in his own hands. Next time on the Mens Rea Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod and join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group. Or you can send us in your questions, comments, or suggestions at mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors on Patreon. Thank you guys, your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank some of our reviewers on Apple Podcasts, History Goes Bump Podcast, Melissa from Moms and Murder Podcast, and Natalie from the Feminist Furies Podcast. I also want to thank you all sincerely for your feedback. I really appreciate it. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time. Don't do anything I wouldn't do.